Dr. Amalia Gonyas-Malka, welcome to Womanity, Woman in Unity, the show that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in their struggles for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights, democracy, racism, socioeconomic class division, and gender-based violence. Joining us on the line today is Ms. Liesel van der Merwe from the Encarta Freedom Party, who serves as a member of parliament and sits on several committees, such as the Committee on Multi-Party Women's Caucus, the Joint Committee on Ethics and Members' Interests, the Portfolio Committee on Home Affairs, and the Portfolio Committee on Social Development. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's really lovely to be here and, and thank you for that great introduction. Ms. Vindermova, over the course of the series, we've spoken to several female members of parliament from the Democratic Alliance, the Economic Freedom Fighters, the Freedom Front Plus, the African Transformation Movement, and now today the Encarta Freedom Party. I'd like to say that there's been two common points of conversation that have emerged, one being about service to citizens and holding government to account for respective departments to deliver on their mandate. And the second is affecting meaningful change. You serve on four committees and in the committees that you're part of, do you feel that there's adequate representation of women and are their voices heard? Well, I would say most definitely we are adequately represented on my portfolio committees. If you look, for example, on my portfolio committee of, of social development, um, we are mostly female members of parliament serving on that portfolio committee, um, bar for two male MPs. Um, on my home affairs portfolio committee, we are also a 50-50% representation there. Um, I do think that our voices are heard. I do think that as um, female members of parliament, we do drive um, issues around the emancipation of women. We make sure that we do lobby in our various committees um, for our departments to focus on projects for women. Uh, we also do speak, uh, for example, in our committees um, about issues such as the employment of women in our various committees. So I do believe our voices are heard, but I guess the question becomes um, whether us being represented in the numbers that we are on our various portfolio committees, whether our voices result in real change for women on the ground, for the women that we represent. And I don't necessarily um, think that representation um, always uh, directly translates into real change for women on the ground. So I would I would say we are fairly well represented. I think we do drive and speak uh, for gender equality and empowerment of women in those various portfolio committees. But again, um, you know, it, it goes about, as you said in the introduction, whether um, our voices being heard translates into real change for women. Because at the end of the day, if, if our voices are are not strong enough to hold to account the various departments and the roles and responsibilities that they've got towards women in the execution of their duties, then at the end of the day, that doesn't translate into to the empowerment of women in the communities that we serve on. But we are well represented. <laughs> Representation is always a positive, and I do want to dwell a little bit later on in terms of this of the aspects of driving meaningful change. So we'll we'll discuss that in a moment. 
But staying currently with the portfolios that you sit on, and you mentioned the fact that one, obviously, we've got strong representation of women, and part of of having that representation means that women's issues do get heard. So can you tell us about a few of the priority points or focal areas in relation to women on the portfolio committees that you serve on, specifically in home affairs and social development? So we know that, of course, um, the Department of Social Development focuses heavily, well, its entire budget, most of its budget is spent on um, SASA. Um, So we know that women bear the brunt of poverty. We know that women remain on the fringes of the economy. We know that it's uh, female households, about 75% of female households in rural areas, for example, are are female-led. Um, so, so the work of SASA is very important because once SASA, if SASA is not working, if, for example, uh, SASA queues are very long or the application processes for for grants are very um, difficult, then of course that impacts directly on women. So, in our portfolio committee of social development, we've spent a lot of time. I served um, during a time when SASA was going through a lot of difficulties. And I think we have managed to stabilize SASA in in such a way that it's a more responsive um, entity currently that that helps to alleviate poverty. And and like I said, the face of poverty in South Africa, um, unfortunately, is is still a female face. So um, we, you know, and of course, also in that portfolio committee, although South Africa now has a national strategic plan to fight gender based violence, um, the main um, lead department in the fight against gender based violence, although I don't think that they're doing enough um, is the Department of Social Development. So we do, um, you know, we do focus on those issues quite a lot, uh, which of course has got a female face and we know gender-based violence in South Africa is a crisis. Um, So um, a lot of our work, I would say, in that portfolio committee centers around women and children and in particular vulnerable women and children. Then also on the Department of Home Affairs, of course, it's not so heavily uh, focused on issues uh, pertaining to women. But what is also encouraging is that of late in this year's annual performance plan, the Department of Home Affairs will now also be um, focusing on gender-based violence awareness um, programs. Um, and of course, we lobby as as parliament, female parliamentarians, for example, that you know, there must be special arrangements when, um, you know, a woman visits, a woman with a child, for example, visits home affairs offices, that they should be treated uh, differently. Um, and then, of course, also remember, if, if the Department of Home Affairs is not functional, if if also their systems are continuously down or, or offline, um, it means that in, in, in many cases, women cannot access birth certificates for their, for their children, and then they also, they cannot access government services. So so a lot of these issues that 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 doesn't look like it's got a female element or a female face. Um, you know, many departments, if they don't work or they don't deliver, it actually negatively impacts on on the future and empowerment of women. Thanks for highlighting some of the work that's underway and also giving that perspective of of how these departments affect or impact on women. One of the committees that you sit on is the Multi-Party Women's Caucus. I'd like to hear what your views are on the role of the Multi-Party Women's Caucus to accelerate issues facing women in the country, whether it is aspects of gender-based violence, to pay parity, to equal opportunities in the economy, as well as components of paid care labour. 
Look, I'm going to be very honest. I think the multi-party women's caucus, it's a great initiative because at the end of the day, you know, when it comes to women's issues, all of us as female MPs need to stand together to, to obviously fight for the real and meaningful empowerment of women. So I would say it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a noble idea. It's a great initiative. But what we need to guard against as parliamentarians is this um, habit of, of getting into a situation where we end up having talk shops and workshops and seminars. And this committee, unfortunately, while it's got no, you know, it, it, it sort of strives to um, make a meaningful impact on a variety of issues, whether it's on uh, the delivery of free sanitary pads or fighting gender based violence or addressing issues such as the chronic underfunding of shelters for women and children. This multi-party women's caucus doesn't have special powers for, um, you know, special implementation powers. It doesn't have a budget, for example. So so while there is um, good in that we get together as, as female MPs across, political, uh, the, across the political divide and we do unite around issues, you know, I would have liked to have seen a situation where maybe um, let's take the issue of of the, the the gender pay gap. Now, in South Africa, our parliament is very quiet with where it comes to the gender pay gap, and, and yet the gender pay gap stands at 30%. And then if you go and look at legislation, I mean, it, it is legislated against. Companies cannot pay women less than they should uh, than they pay men. But it's about the fact that these laws are not implemented, and to that effect. This multi-party women's caucus, for example, if we are to be really effective, and I'm hoping that, um, you know, in months to come, we, we can take this this type of approach. But ideally, one would then have to, you know, call the Minister of Labor and Employment to this committee and ask him for sort of time frames in which, um, you know, they can make sure that they, you know, hold to account, implement legislation so that we start to address issues like the gender pay gap. Similarly, it was around 2012, 2013 that um, the then President Jacob Zuma announced that um, all indigenous schoolgirls should have access to, to free sanitary pads. Now, as things stand, we have not in the seven or eight years really moved, um, governments not really moved on, on, on this pledge or this you know offer that they made to two young women. And we know that when young women do not have access to sanitary pads, they lose school days and it, Eventually, it means that there's a gap in their education or some girls even drop out. So in this instance as well, one should be calling to account the Minister of Finance, one should be calling to account the various role players in government that should have made this happen a long time ago. I mean, if we can roll out free condoms to the extent that we did in the various, um, you know, you can walk into any public bathroom and have access and men can have access to, to condoms. So if, if government was so successful in rolling out that project, then there should not really be a problem with the way they go about rolling out sanitary pads. And in fact, this campaign has been very um, erratic. I think some provinces have rolled it out and some haven't. So this committee, in essence, what I'm trying to say is it's a good initiative, but it needs to have a little bit more uh, teeth, you know, it needs to develop its own implementation powers, and and that would mean that all of us would have to um, make sure that we call to account um, in front of this multi-party women's caucus um, the various uh, ministers and departments that fail our women. 
So much of what you, you're saying reminds me of the, the, the point that if something gets measured, it gets counted. If something has got a budget, it becomes more accountable. And if you don't have the the powers to to drive something forwards, then you, you just don't get that type of, of traction. When you talk about the aspect of rolling out free sanitary wear, I was doing some rudimentary calculations and I thought on average, if a girl, a woman will have a girl, woman will have her, her cycle and she will be out of action for probably a week every month. That's 25 percent of a year. If you keep thinking about the accumulated effects of being out of school for 25 percent of the time, effectively four months of the year, you will never, ever be able to to catch up. So it's a major hindrance. And if, as you say, if we could roll out free condoms, why on earth can't we roll out free sanitary pads to a generation that absolutely needs it? So that is exactly my point. What I don't understand is when we, you know, there's so, we, we pay lip service often um, as politicians to a variety of issues. But for example, if we say we 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 are really passionate about the empowerment of, of women, and I mean, this is something that our government um, has often said, that they do want to be seen to be part of empowering women and, and ending gender inequality. They want to see the emancipation of women. Now, if you look at that pledge or that commitment, that statement, and then on the other hand, you you've got ample evidence to suggest that um, by not affording poor learners, especially in rural areas, access to sanitary wear, you are in fact um, robbing them of, of education and in fact robbing them of their future potential. Then it really doesn't make any sense to me if we're saying on the one hand that we are so passionate about the empowerment of women and then on the other hand, we fail in enrolling out the very basics that could empower our women. And this is a small thing that we could do really well to ensure that young women are able to to stay in school. One thing that I'm very proud of um, is that in our last local government election, my political party, I was able to lobby the leadership of my political party to say that where we govern in the municipalities that we um, win, we should be able to, our mayors should be able to make um, make available free sanitary wear to schoolgirls in those areas that need them. I was extremely touched because I, I one of the mayors um, invited me to attend one of these ceremonies where he had gone and he had asked local business, um, he had asked uh, uh, you know community leaders to donate sanitary wear, and he had called schoolgirls to an event where we heard harrowing stories of young girls who had told us with crying that they would not have been able to sit for their final exams, for example, that year. Um, they would probably have not been able to write the exams, um, some of them, had they not had that intervention at that stage. So, um, you know, I, I sometimes feel that so much more can be done. Um, if you speak about, for example, fighting gender-based violence, and again, you think about the impact gender-based violence has got on families, on women, on their future prospects, on job opportunities. And then you think about the chronic underfunding of our shelters, uh, for abused women and children. You know, in South Africa, we spend about 550 rand on uh, a, a prisoner in, in jail. So a man might have committed a, gender, a crime, a gender-based violence crime. He goes to a prison. He's got access to three meals. He's got access to education. Our government spends 550 rand on that prisoner. Yet, when a mother and a child seeks 
a refuge at a shelter for abused women and children. Um, some of these shelters receive as little as five rand, or if they're lucky, 50 rand a day from government. So there's really an imbalance, um, if I can put it like that, in, in the way government views its spending um, or executes its spending on, on women's empowerment projects. So I think also our government has got to look at, they often talk about gender responsive budgeting, but um, our budgets are very, um, you know, it's, it, it doesn't have a female element to it. And yet we know that, you know, when you put money into the hands of women, they spend it on their families, they spend it on their communities. So I think there needs to be a shift in the way we we spend our money. Um, and, and I think that will really have a very positive inf- influence and impact on women and their lives. And ultimately, it will actually uh, you know, be a driver for change um, in South Africa as a whole. Staying with the themes that you've spoken about in terms of how budgets are, are being distributed, I've been doing this program for eight years, and after eight years, statistically speaking, not much seems to have changed for women. And one of the arguments that I continue to have is this idea that how can we accelerate change? How can we make things move more quickly? And when you speak about components of the way that budget spends its money, I had a very interesting conversation recently with Professor Trigana from the University of Johannesburg. And we spoke about fiscal policy as being a potential mechanism for accelerating change to direct expenditure in order to benefit women, exactly like you're saying in terms of having gender responsive budgeting. And the fact that budgets are renewed on an annual basis. So given what you know now and your experience as a member of parliament, how do you think we can help motivate to to reconfigure budgets so that they do have more of a, a gender lens or a female lens in these types of scenarios? You see, there, there's been a lot of talk at government level um, in terms of gender responsive budgeting, and it's something that we throw around at parliament in the various portfolio committees. But unfortunately, if you look at treasury, it's 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 mostly male led, and then. You do see your female ministers often speaking about gender responsive budgeting and the need for that. So I think at the end of the day, like I said, you know, um, we as parliamentarians, um, it goes back to holding the executive to account, but also for female ministers, for example, to have a greater voice in cabinet to, to say, for example, it cannot be that we continue to talk about gender responsive budgeting, and, and it goes to members of parliament as well. I think it's a theme we should um, you know, speak about more in parliament. Firstly, our, our population is it's mostly female. We've got, um, you know, there's a lot of, lot of evidence to suggest as well that, you know, once females lead in a certain area, there's more stability, there's more growth. So there's definitely a need for us to, to go past talking about gender responsive budgeting and and seeing to it that it's implemented as aggressively as we need it to be. But it, it but again it goes back to us as female MPs using our voices as a collective um, together with our ministers and to ensure that we start making those who put together the numbers and the budgets see the need and understand the need for budgets to have a female face and what that means in terms of how we can turn around South Africa. So I'm completely in favor of it. 
I think, you know, gender responsive budgeting for me, um, it makes a lot of sense. And I think we can do a little, lot of good and, and, and affect a lot of change if our budgets are more female responsive. It was very heartwarming to hear you relay the story about one of your mayor's making motivations of being able to bring in free sanitary wear and the stories of the girls that are actually being the beneficiaries so that they could sit their exams. So staying for a moment on the Encarta Freedom Party, it is an established political party which exists to serve the people of South Africa and to do so in the spirit of Ubuntu. Please tell us, what's the composition of women in the party? So I don't think during COVID we updated our membership only because, of course, we need to, you know, go to communities to be able to do that. Or, But I think in our last membership census, if I can put it like that, we were probably more female um, members of, of, of the party than male. Um, in the IFP, for example, I serve on the IFP's uh, National Council. The IFP's National Council is the highest decision-making body of the IFP. And there, for example, we've, we've got a 50-50 representation of female and, and men. So um, I think the IFP is always viewed, and it's, it's something that you often read if you go and look back um, at some of the historical speeches. It is indeed the IFP is the fourth largest political party in the country. Uh, with the third largest opposition party, and it was established in 1975. And if you look at some of the literature dating back, the IFPs always believed in women as being its backbone, um, you know, recognizing the value and importance of women. The ANC has got a 50-50% um, uh, representation policy. I think at our last conference, ours was 60-40, uh, but we are striving towards having 50-50% representation in, in all our decision-making structures like, like we've got at our IFB National Council. And how do you think we can encourage more women to take up politics professionally? Um, you know, that's a difficult one, but I would say women, you know, if you, for example, in my case, as, as, a, young, as a young girl growing up, um, I believed, I think I was about 10 years old when I, when I thought to myself, that I really wanted to make a change or be involved in being a part of, of change in South Africa. And I, I thought long and hard about it. I thought maybe I should become a lawyer, but but something always drew me to, to politics. And, and when I started talking about my ambitions to be a politician, especially in the community where I grew up, people were very, you know, very negative and they, I can't even remember a single person who, who supported my ambition to be a politician. So I wanted really say to to women that you know if you if you do believe that you want to make a change you you know you want to be involved in politics um, you want to work for your community and and you are passionate about people and wanting to see a stronger better South Africa that nothing should stop you from being part of politics I mean if you look at examples currently around the world we've got a a president, a female president now in Tanzania. We've got a deputy a vice president, a female vice president in America. You've got the um, president of New Zealand who is absolutely excellent. Um, so I think there's so many great examples of when women lead, how great they are in leading. And so I would really like to encourage young women, women to, to put up their hands, step forward and, and say, you know, I'm ready to lead. And I think, you know, nothing should stop us from, from being involved in politics if you're doing it for the right reasons. If it's something that you're passionate about, 
Um, and if it's something you deeply care about, you should definitely put up your hand and, and be encouraged and know that within the structures, for example, uh, you know, at Parliament, I think a lot of us female MPs, whether we're on the ANC benches, EFF, IFP or DA, we do support one another. So really, I, I, I think it's something worthwhile to take up if you're truly passionate and committed to the cause. Building female leadership capacity is incredibly important. It's one of the routes where if we can get more women into leadership positions where they are capable, where they're confident and driving meaningful, effective change. You've cited some of the prime ministers and and presidents and, and vice presidents of the world who are women. And we often talk about them on this program. In your opinion, what do you think needs to happen to ensure that we can get more women to make it to the top, whether that is in the political space, whether that is in the the business world or academic sphere? I think we who occupy space um, should really take a more active role in in mentoring. I think, um, you know, I've thought about it, but I I think it's probably something that I will eventually um, speak, speak to the Speaker of Parliament of our own parliament um, too. I mean, she's, she's, for example, a wonderful leader herself. I've got the greatest respect for, for Tandi Modise, our speaker. She's, you know, when she speaks, you are captivated. It's also somebody who, you know, she obviously has a rich history, but um, she's a very strong female politician. And, and, you know, even you don't have to be an ANC member to look up to, to her qualities and her leadership skills. But I think we we who occupy space, we have we who afford to to be where we are should take a greater role in mentoring. And that is also um, you know it goes goes for, for businesses as, as well. Um, and I, I even thought that at some stage maybe um, you know in, in the month of August um, when we do celebrate women's month Maybe Parliament could, um, you know, encourage its female MPs to take in some, you know, some young people who, young women who would like to be involved in politics. I mean, we do get them in our various structures and our political parties and bring them in, you know, uh, mentor them, show them the robes, show them what it looks like to be inside um, the, the chambers of Parliament, you know, take them to portfolio committee meetings, show them that, you know, you don't have to be intimidated by by male voices. And I think if we start by by making small meaningful um, gestures like that, you know that that's more that's more meaningful and impactful than talking about just you know encouraging women to to say to them you know take take part in politics or you know dream of being a CEO of a company. I think if we start mentoring, um, taking and showing young young people the ropes, um, young women the ropes, it will become much easier for them to to ascend to those spaces. Uh, where we are. You know, we didn't have that. I think many of us, um, I remember coming in as a young female MP and I I struggled in my first portfolio committee meetings because I, you know, I had nobody to show me the ropes, but um, I had to find my way. And, and like I said, it was a dream that I had from a young age, but I do think it will be easier if, if we take an active role um, in mentoring. Um, you know, female leaders should consider very strongly that that we should be giving back um, and I think that that's possible. That's a it's a possible solution to start helping people get into these spaces. It's so important to have someone to who's walked that journey before to to be able to give back. And I I think that it's always a a way of instead of being instead of having someone walk through the same pain processes that you had to undergo, that if you can give them that leap 
forwards gives them a bit of an accelerant. No, definitely. And you know what? I'm thinking back, uh, you know, from where where I've come from, you know, Um, in the beginning, like I said, when I didn't have anybody at at that stage, also our caucus was relatively small. So I didn't have there were not many other females in my caucus. So I was I was a young female amongst uh, males who had been there for many, many years. And um, literally, I, you know, I struggled because I didn't I didn't really know. Not only not did I not know the ropes, but. I also became unnecessarily hard on myself, you know, for example, in, in, um, to go to a portfolio committee, you have to study your documents and then you have to ask tough questions. And I remember my maiden speech standing at the podium thinking, look to my right, there's all these struggle heroes. There's your Naledi Pandor, your, you know, at that stage, it was still Trevor Manuel. And because you didn't, because I didn't have somebody saying to me, you know what, you are well prepared, you did your homework, there's nothing to be nervous about, um, we are here to support you. Um, it, I became quite hard on myself because I felt that everything that I was doing was was not good enough or it was, I, I was failing in, in my duties to hold the executive to account. And I've had to, I've had to, you know, get out of that. I've had to sort of, um, uh, but I mean, I'm generally a hard worker, so I do believe that when I go to meetings, um, I'm well prepared and I do my best and I do justice to what I'm supposed to be doing. But I, I do feel that if I had somebody to hold my hand in the in the earlier years, maybe I could have, uh, you know, gotten out of the starting blocks a little bit faster. So I do, yeah, I, I do strongly believe in giving back, and I think it's very important that Parliament itself strongly considers. Um, these type of mentorship programs for for young for young women because I don't I don't even think if you look at the continent I've interacted with many female MP, MPs from from various other countries like Malawi and Tanzania etc I don't think um, it's something that we do as as female parliamentarians but I think really it's something that um, like I said earlier we we get into these habits of talking about the empowerment of women. But this, for example, is a small practical step that we can take as a parliament to encourage throughout the month of, of August um, to have these mentorship programs where we take in young young women who have got aspirations to lead and, and mentor and give back. That would be a great one to introduce into the multi-party women's caucus. Most definitely. <laughs> now. I'd like to ask you about your personal journey and factors of success. Many of the guests who've been on our show speak about discipline, focus, faith and and values. Please tell us what, in your opinion, what have been some of the key drivers to your success? I think, firstly, it was my sense of purpose. I, I, I Like I said, I knew from a young age well, maybe let me start um, by saying I grew up with a mother who herself had been a victim of, of gender-based violence, and that impacted very heavily on her life. My mother, my mother didn't finish her matric. Um, my mother ended up having to work three jobs to look after me. My mother eventually developed depression and other forms of mental illness, all going back um, from from her own childhood. And so as I eventually in my 20s became the, the primary caregiver of, of my mother, I realized that I realized that I wanted to be a strong woman and I wanted to go to parliament to to fight the very things that um, robbed my mother of being the woman that she could have been. So um, 
I think from a very young age, I knew that I wanted to one be a, be a strong woman, but I wanted to go and fight for people like my mother, and I wanted to um, ensure that when I do get to Parliament, that I speak on women's issues, that I fight, um, you know, for women to be able to take up their space, to be leaders, um, that we fight patriarchy, that we fight things that hold women back. And as I, you know, I, I'm fe- I feel very blessed that, in fact, you know, <laughs> an Afrikaans girl when people told me that. You know, South Africa is changing. There's no space for for some of us in politics that I was able to to make it to where I am. But I would say I've always been very disciplined. Um, I've 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 worked really hard in my life. I think if I even have to at one stage I was working a day job, a night job, a weekend job to get me to where I am. So definitely, my I think my my values, my hard work, my discipline, my focus, my drive, my sense of purpose my sense of um, knowing what I wanted to get out of this process. And also, I think at the end of the day, you know, I went into politics for the right reasons. I'm, I'm not in politics to to do anything else but to try and, and effect meaningful change for people uh, like my mother. And so um, I, the, the journey has been a hard one, um, but a very enjoyable one. And I continue to be immensely blessed. Um, but I really want to say that Anything, anything is possible if you've got a passion for what you're pursuing and if you're willing to work really, really hard. Um, and, and I think that's 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 how that was my winning recipe, if I can put it like that. Can you tell us who've been some of the strong women in your life as you were growing up or, or even today? I think I must say in, in my life, I've had a lot of strong female friends. Um, I, I grew up, I went to a boarding school. Um, so I, I formed a lot of friendships at boarding school. Uh, you know, my one friend, she's a CEO of a company. Um, you know, I've got friends. I've, I've been blessed in my life to have very, very strong female friends. And, and we've really supported one another. But um, you know, I've also looked towards other people in my life. Um, you know, at a young age, I was always watching Oprah thinking, you know, this is a woman who also she had been dealt some very tough cards in her life, but she she made the most of it. And she she's been such a success. And if you also look at her life story um, and, and, you know, some of the difficulties that she had to overcome, not only as a black woman, but, uh, you know, a child that grew up in a home where she was, uh, you know, she had a lot of difficulties with it was abuse or poverty and that she was able to transcend all of those uh, difficulties. So, you know, there are a lot of strong women that 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 you know you can you can look up to, um, and she's definitely been one of them. But I've also been blessed to to have good friends, strong female friends who have walked the journey with me, and and they were all there when I made my maiden speech. <laughs> so they were all there rooting for me. So um, I've been blessed in that regard. The sense that I get out of our conversation today is that from a very early age, you've always had this uh, view of of being able to have an impact, of being able to drive and create change. So as a young person growing up, tell us about some of the pivotal moments in your life. Well, I think... um like I said, I mean, I, I remember very vividly in I was 14 when South Africa moved from uh, an apartheid state to a democratic country. Um, I, I remember then saying to myself that 
you know, I wanted to be as a as a as a young white South African. I wanted to be a part of this new South Africa. I wanted to build it into a better country. So my, I don't know, you know, it's it's difficult because when you speak to other people, n- nobody really had this sense of wanting to serve, if I can put it like that. So my young age, you know, I, I, but I was a I was a normal child. I grew up um, in a working class family. Um, you know, I was blessed in the sense that I went to very good schools and I was able to even travel. Off, I, I love traveling. So I was able to travel after school and then study journalism. Um, I was a very, you know, sports fanatic. Um, well, I was an athlete before I became a politician. Now all I do is travel and work. <laughs> but um, yeah, I had a good I had a good childhood, but I had a very, um, you know, like I said, with with the challenges that my mother had. Um, I, I was drawn to to politics and and wanting to to be a part of a, of a better South Africa. And lastly, as we close out our conversation today, I'd appreciate it if you could share a few words of inspiration or wisdom that you'd like to pass on to girls and women who are listening to us on the continent. I would like to say to to young women that don't. Don't let anybody ever discourage you from your dreams. Your dreams are valid. If you can dream it, you can believe it, and you can achieve it. Um, and and really, I want to say to to every young woman, if it's your dream to lead in whatever space, you can take up that space. And um, you know, don't be discouraged because um, some tell you that women have got certain roles to play in communities or society. We can be whatever we dream and believe that we want to be. Um, and, and so I, I would really like to say to every young woman and wherever you are, in whatever community you are, you are special and you, your dreams are valid and pursue them and, and go for, you know, go reach, reach for the stars and, and I'm sure you will achieve it. That's such a great message. Reach for the stars. You have been listening to Womanity, Woman in Unity on Channel Africa, The African Perspective. And we have been talking to Member of Parliament, Ms. Liesel van der Merwe from the Encarta Freedom Party, who serves as a Member of Parliament and sits on several committees. Thank you for joining us.